Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen. He doesn't obey my commands. And we can't even bribe him with trees. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whispers. Hey, welcome to The God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. And I remain Bill Swirla. Still are, huh? Yep. Ha- haven't changed in all these weeks. Just wait. You're getting older. We're back. Pretty yeah, soon I you'll am. forget who you are. I am. I am getting older. <laughs> no question about it. So you got your uh, your operating system upgraded. Did you upgrade to El Capitan? I did. It has a really nice, uh, a nice uh, sort of startup screen. You know, it's got... Uh, a picture of uh, El Cap at sunset, I think. Sunset or sunrise, uh-huh. I can't tell. I, it's been a long time since I've been to Yosemite, but uh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture. So it's it's worth the startup screen alone, I think. Um, <laughs> I've been waiting to uh, get more reviews from people on any glitchiness or anything, but well, uh, sounds kind of stable for the re- most part. Reviews are not really kind of the issue because you, sooner or later you have to go there. You know, if you're gonna right. if you're gonna keep up with with all the other stuff, it's so integrated that you don't really have a choice. Um, I, I usually like to wait until the first. Um, I don't know what they call it, but you know, the, the, there's an upgrade, and then there's the point one where they fix everything that was wrong with the upgrade. So I usually wait till the point one comes out because at least I know when I do, and and it had. It had. I think it comes out about forty-eight hours after the upgrade comes out, uh, when you know the first the first crowd of users is the final beta test, and they go, "Whoops, we forgot to do this." And uh, so, so there is a there is a I forgot what number. Let's let me take a look here. What is it? It's ten point. What operating system are we working with right now here? Ten, we, ten point eight. We are working. Everything that I open for the first time is slow. I'm uh, guessing eight. Ten point eleven. Eleven. Eleven is El Capitan. Uh, point one. But I got point one. So you always have to wait for point one to uh, to hit because otherwise there's going to be problems. So it's still kind of a mystery. I just just as we were speaking, my mail came up. So that's good. Um, <laughs> you know, it has to rebuild the the database and it sure. it just rebuilds everything from scratch. And uh, and so I'm still waiting for. Yeah, things but um yeah well, I, it's so far so good it, it, it looks it, it looks fine it, it, i may be uh doing this uh this evening who knows yeah i i, I don't know why I, I had time and and uh, i didn't need my computer i usually wait until i know that i'm not going to need to use my computer for about 48 hours and then i do start the upgrades but um, I have three, you know, I work with three different Macs, uh, two at, at church and one at home. So I always do the home one first because it's the least mission critical. Although I realized as we were preparing for the show that I do need this for the show. And that was getting kind of like nervous making. Yes. But it's okay. It's, it's working. We're good. For we're all good. parties concerned, a little nervous. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, just back from vacation. So I, I've, uh, my timing is off here. Well, so you went to the uh, Great Northwest, right? We were up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, mostly that the little peninsula, Port Townsend, um, and then the Seattle area, the Seattle-Tacoma area for a little bit. Um, 
my wife has relatives. She has a nephew and niece that live between uh, Seattle and Tacoma. So we spent some time up in the fog and rain uh, at Port Townsend. Beautiful little town, kind of Victorian-esque little strange town, quirky town. Um, great coffee, great B&B up there. And uh, and then uh, we, did, we did a day in Seattle. That was fun. Seattle's a really cool city. I, I love Seattle a lot. Yeah, I do too. Seattle's uh, we took place. the underground Seattle tour. Oh. I... So Seattle uh, originally was built kind of on the beach. And then they realized that wasn't going to work, and and there was trouble with the toilets backing up because the, the there wasn't enough of uh yeah because they were just dumping raw sewage into the ocean because that's what they did back then and and so wait that's that's not a good thing no and so okay. in spite of what they do down here in Southern California when it rains um and <laughs> uh so they had to uh, they had to elevate the city so. <laughs> And, and Seattle's kind of a, it's it's an interesting town. I, I've come to come to uh, see it as it's it's the city of the ad hoc solution. You know, it's it's like they don't have a real plan, but let's try this anyway. So they had they basically they 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 had you know the builders build buildings, and then they raised the street level. So they just raised everything up one one story, and for a while. Uh, you had to like go down ladders and up ladders to get from store to store because uh, and so the the these buildings first floors became their basement and so it's not really an underground Seattle so much as it is the first floor of Seattle which is uh, not the same as street level today so you're kind of going under the current streets of Seattle and it's really strange and there's all kinds of junk down there and. And it was raining, so it was you know appropriately dripping on you. And it's not like the tunnels of port of, of Portland. Portland has tunnels like Chicago does, and lots of nefarious activities going on there. But so it's very is, cool. Is the city kind of built on ruins, or, or no, 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 no? It's just it just has a first floor that's underground now hmm. today. Okay, because the current city is is up. <laughs> And they, they, they basically blasted away hills and carted off dirt in order to elevate the city because they needed more of a pitch for their drain system because toilets were backing up. Interesting. So They you, were one of the you, first cities to use the, 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 that great new invention, the crapper from Thomas Crapper. Yes. Yeah, they, 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 ordered, bless him. they ordered a whole shipload and notice how carefully I said that of of these the, this marvelous. I'm glad you did this marvelous. And you know, it came by ship, um, and so they had a ship load of of these <laughs> these things and of uh, uh, colorful history. Craig, colorful. You know, Seattle. Seattle's a lot. You know, it's a little bit like San Francisco, but not. I mean, it started out as a logging town. Mm-hmm. And then when they struck gold up in Alaska, it became sort of a banking merchant uh, saloon brothel town. That's like San Francisco, kind of an adult theme park sort of thing. And then it went through its aerospace era. And then it's now going through a dot-com boom because, you know, Amazon's up there. And, of course, Microsoft kind of led led the pack. But but they're very much into tech. So they're, they're kind of the, you know, sort of the Silicon Valley of the Northwest. It's very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. Great place. I love Seattle. Yeah. I, I, it, was, it was a nice visit. It was kind of a reconnaissance visit. We'll go back. But uh, just kind of wanted to take four or five days and just kind of s- scope it out. Eat lots of oysters. 
And, now, last uh, time I was there, I, I had read somewhere uh, that actually Boston gets more rain than Seattle. Possible. And, uh, you know, Seattle's known for being overcast and drizzly all the time and everything, but uh, they get sunshine. When the sun comes out, it's beautiful. It's I mean, the, the statistic you'd have to look for is how many days of sun per year. Hmm. I, I would estimate that Boston gets more days of sun, but their rain, net rain is probably a lot a lot higher, especially in the last few years where East, East Coast rainfall has been just, like, like horrific, and snowfall, too. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get the impression that they, they – well, they, they do get sort of monsoonal-type rains that come through in the rainy season. We had a little bit. It wasn't it wasn't monsoonal. It was just rain drizzle. I am consulting the Google as go. we speak here. Anyway, so 60% I – 60% in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, yeah, well. 110 days. Let's see here. We're, we're, we're probably about 90% here. Boston, 98 days – 98 clear days. 98 clear days, that's all? 98 clear days in Boston. Wow. And uh, Seattle? Seattle, next page. I, oh, no, scroll down further. Uh, Seattle, 58 clear days. So, yeah. yeah. So Seattle Seattle has, uh, has a lot fewer sunny days than Boston, but Boston gets probably more rain or precipitation in total. San Francisco has 160 clear days. It I does. That. It does actually. Um, the the fog doesn't actually blanket the city. Usually, it it kind of reaches in the Golden Gate, and sometimes uh, it's it's foggy outside the Golden Gate. But the city usually sits in sunshine most of the time. It's very beautiful. That's a spectacular shot. Whenever you're in San, San Francisco, and you can get the fingers of fog reaching in under the Golden Gate into the bay, it's just—it's really cool. I remember we used to sit up on the rise uh, in in Berkeley, and you could look out over the bay. It was just just gorgeous. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, only one more clear day out of the year than Seattle. Really? Who knew? Pittsburgh, PA. Pittsburgh. Anyway, enough of this. There you weather. go. Enough, enough of this weather enough nonsense. Enough sunshine, sunshine activity. Oh, wait, Los Angeles, 147. I would have thought more than that. Yeah, so would I. So oh. would I. But, but, you know, your typical winter is pretty overcast. And then we get the, the, the uh, May gray and the June gloom. Right. So the, the uh, Los Angeles being coastal, the, that marine layer will sit for a long time. Sometimes. St. Louis, 101. Yeah, and hotter oh, than anything. Actually, oh, gosh, the humidity is ridiculous in the summertime. Just crazy. Anyway, the God Whispers hotline, if you want to call and comment on the weather or anything else, 626-593-7713, which, of course, spells Manly Doctors 13. Mm-hmm. Godwhispers.com or no, actually, correct that. Godwhispers.org is our is our actual email address. You can use .com; it'll redirect and therefore kind of like hiccup for a second. Uh, all Web the episodes address. archived there, yes. and uh, and if you want to reach us by email, which is a great way to reach us, uh, we can be found at Godwhispers at gmail I do have uh, an email I'd like to take up, if that's okay. Yeah, but uh, before you do that, uh-huh. I just want to mention you can subscribe on iTunes, as all the cool kids do. You can. Yeah. And, and a variety of other uh, feed subscriber things, Pod, too. It's, it's, all, it's, it's all on the um, it's all on the website. So we should go to the mailbag. Let's do it. The God Whisperer Mailbag, brought to you by Sunny Days. Bill? 
Sun days. Very nice. Sunny days. From Kevin. Got to turn that down a little bit more. Hello, Doctors oh, of awesome. Theology. I am a listener to your show, also a lifelong Lutheran. I have a question about your show where Pastor Swirla said he thought catechism was not a good way to admit people to the Lord's Supper. Uh, I'm going no. to gonna have to when amend you that. stick your foot in it? Going to have to amend that. I'm not right. sure I said that, but that's what he heard. I have to admit, I used to say the same thing when I was a kid, studying the catechism, memorizing all the parts. Then it struck me, and I have to say from a pastoral standpoint, it made sense. How does the pastor examine the parishioner that has the old Lutheran card, especially when I am Joe Visitor and tell you I'm from the church across the uh, state? I've seen my pastor take many visitors at their word, but it would be awesome if a pastor would just once ask the visitor to recite the Ten Commandments with the explanation. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, if you did that in your congregation, only like like ten people would commune. Um, That's probably going to a bit... Too far, but that's where my thoughts went. I just finished going to catechism a second time with my son as my pastor asked that I attend with him, which is a good practice, by the way. Yes. Since he was the only catechumen. You also solve all your like catechumen behavior problems when dad's sitting there. Um, I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm thankful for all the pastors that continue to teach Lutheran catechism. Anyways, I look forward to your response. Sorry so long. Enjoy the show. Try not to listen to more than two episodes at a time. So he's a careful listener, and we appreciate that. Good boy. Uh, So whatever I said, whatever was heard, um, catechism is a good uh, way to admit people to the Lord's Supper. Uh, In fact, our catechism, the large catechism, says we don't admit anyone to the Lord's Supper unless they know what they're receiving and why. Uh, it also basically says that the kind of the bottom line toward admission is that you know the basic text of the Christian faith, namely the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Our Father, though it's not referring to the explanations. Bear in mind, the explanations were actually not meant for the kids to memorize and recite in robotic fashion. They were written by Luther for the parents to learn by heart since they couldn't read. Uh, literacy rates were quite low in Luther's day, and uh, and a lot of his people, especially in the country churches, were not literate at all. And so his, that his parents could teach their children, he made a memorable catechism, probably the most memorable in the history of Christianity. And so they could memorize yeah. the catechism, sit at the table, and teach their children the chief parts of the Christian faith. I'm seeing more and more of our churches actually having in the pews uh, that the 20 questions and their answers yes. for those who wish to commune. And and that is the catechism in short there, really. Well, yeah, and not written by Luther, uh, but written with his knowledge and approval, mm-hmm. uh, kind of near catechism. They, 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 it actually is not part of most catechisms that we have. Uh, but it's written from the same time period and by the same sort of core group of people that uh, from whence the catechisms came in the first place. And I think the 20 questions actually represent a really good um, outline or template for um, self-examination for one who wishes to come to the sacrament or for pastoral examination of one who desires to come to the sacrament. Uh, that is a really, I think that's a really good template. But notice that none of those questions uh, ask you to recite recite verbatim, you know, the commandments and their meanings or the articles and their meanings. Not to, not to say that's not a good idea. It's just that 
nowhere is that necessary to admission to the Lord's Supper in, in our own confessions. Um, I think it's integral to the catechetical process. Um, Luther thought that catechesis was lifetime, not just, you know, once or one course to admit you to the Lord's Supper or get you to membership, but it was a lifetime. Uh, one thing that we do in our church is that we have a common Sunday school opening where the adults and the kids are all together, and we go over a catechism for the week, recite it, discuss it, pray it, talk about it, sing the catechetical hymn, and then everybody breaks off into their own group. Uh, so, you know, that's a little, it takes about 15 or 20 minutes, but that's our little catechism for the week. And it's published in the bulletin and that's not a bad way. And it's just, it just goes round and round over and over and over again, never stops. And I think that's kind of the Lutheran ideal of catechism, not a course that you complete and then get rewarded by being admitted to the Lord's supper. I, mm. I think that's, that's a later development in Lutheranism and not necessarily a healthy development either. You know, it, it's it's a struggle because so many of our churches have turned confirmation into a a sacrament and b a graduation from church, and I think we've talked about this yeah. in some detail in the past. But the idea that you get a diploma and we have a big party for you—I mean, it's like graduating high school. And a lot of people go through. They, tra they treat it that way, and a lot of the kids see it that way. Right, and then they disappear until it's time for them to get married, and then they'll come back, uh, you know, to get their kids baptized. And maybe if you're fortunate, they'll come back to get their kids catechized, and then the cycle starts up all over again. And hopefully, when they're old and realizing I'm going to die, then hopefully they take it. Yeah, and yeah, I think we draw some strange and and I think a bit false comfort in this notion that, well, you know, uh, we got the stuff into them and, and you know, they're going to go, they'll go away for a while, but they'll come back when they want to get married or they'll come back when they want their kids baptized. Well, you know, the reality is that today they don't uh, mm. because, because, because going to church and especially going to your parents' church, the, this isn't part of the cultural geist anymore. In fact, it's increasingly uh, countercultural to associate with a church, especially a mainline or a traditional kind of church. Um, so that's not a guarantee that they'll ever be back again. Uh, I think the other the other problem with that whole thing is we have lost them during the years of apprenticeship. Uh, that you know, from age thirteen on through eighteen or twenty or so, they are apprenticing adults, and they've been AWOL. They've not. They've not been. Uh, in the shop, so to speak, they've not mm. been they've not been standing side by side. You know, in Israel, when you were 13, you stood with the adults of Israel and you were apprenticed into full blooded adulthood. Uh, and but we don't we're, we're losing that. We don't have that. And so they check out and then they come back, but they haven't been apprenticed. They they don't they they have you know they're they're just coming back to get something done for their kids. I, I it's a bad situation and and uh, you know what we do in our congregation is that um, when one of our baptized children expresses a desire to come to the sacrament, I and usually about age seven eight something like that, I get the parents and the kids together, and we have a, about a four week class on the Lord's Supper where we just use the Catechism and the Lord's Supper, and we go over the commandments. Uh, you know, especially with regard to sin and second use of the law, that kind of thing. 
and uh, we get them ready for the supper because their place at the supper is a birthright of their baptism. It's not something you earn. It's a birthright of your baptism. And we treat it that way. So when the kid wants to eat solid food, we give we give the kid solid food and a little bit of instruction. But, you know, that's also when we hand them the catechism. So when we admit them to the Lord's Supper uh, the first time, uh, they come before the congregation, we pray for them, and I give them a catechism. And I said, your admission to the Lord's Supper is now the beginning of your catechesis. Yes. See? Because you learn at the table. One of the 20, I think it's question 18. Why do I go? That I may learn. Is a, the table is a place to learn. Where, where did Luther's parents, who memorized the catechism so they could teach their children, where did they do this? They did it at the table. You learn at the, the table's a learning place. It's a classroom. It's a teaching place. So I think the best catechism goes on at the table, in the divine service. That's where, that's where the true catechism goes on. Well, and going along with that, looking at the Great Commission, baptism and instruction go hand in hand. You you don't have one without the other. Really. Yeah, there's not even an and in between no. baptizing and teaching. It's just baptizing teaching. It's this it's is, it's one yeah. activity. This is what the baptized are. They're catechumens for life. Yeah, yeah. But when you when you baptize somebody, you've made them a lifelong catechumen. Right. So it's frustrating as all get out to have parents come and swear up and down that they're going to raise their kids in this church. And uh, maybe they show up for a month or two after the baptism, then just vanish. And, you know, it's frustrating because you go through great pains to drive home the point. You are promising to raise this child in the faith, to educate this child in the faith. And, of course, I'd rather sleep in. Yeah, I like I do like um, catechesis confirmation. One thing our congregation is thinking of doing is is doing kind of a two step confirmation. Um, They're kind of like Lutheran bar mitzvahs, two of them. One at age 12, when we're basically saying, you know, welcome into apprenticeship. We're going to start treating you as an adult. You're no longer a child. I mean, this culture prolongs childhood to, what, 35, 40, something like that. This is ridiculous. So when you're 12 going on 13, um, we welcome you into um, apprentice, the apprenticeship to adulthood. And another at 18, when probably you're going to leave the family nest, you may be going away to college, you may be joining the Army, the, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines. Our country will put an M-16 into your hands. You can blow up our enemies. Still can't have a beer, but you know how that goes. Um, but, you know, the, the society, you can vote. You can get married without your parents' consent. Your society says you're an adult. So we'll celebrate that, too. And I actually kind of like that because in your apprenticeship, if you have been in the divine service, if you are regular in worship, if you are regularly at the table, now we've got something that we can confirm when you're 18, hmm. you know, it's like, wow, I actually have a fruit bearing disciple on my hands here. You know, let's give thanks to God. Let's bless Isn't this. Nice? Let's bless this person. Let's recognize their their adulthood um, because they're they're They may be leaving now. We may be entrusting them to the care of a campus ministry or they may be going to another place to work or, or who knows what. But, um, you know, it's there that parents and the parental church kind of loses track of them, loses control of them. So I, I think there ought to be some ritual for that. And so, you know, I, I call it, it kind of like a Lutheran bar mitzvah. I like it. 
I think that's a fine idea. But at least it has content. It, it, you know, and it's not implying, oh, we get an extra dose of the Holy Spirit. None of that stuff. And it doesn't imply graduation. Right. You know, too many wrong signals. The confirmation gowns look too much like graduation gowns, if you ask me. This is true. But it's break time. Oh, my favorite time. Go get a Canadian snack. We'll be back right after this. I love snack time. Feeling the snack time? I am. I, I, I just had a handful of almonds and some cottage cheese. Mm. It is my lunch hour. You know, when we record, it's 12 out here, so I get mighty hungry. And um, I think I might have an apple after this. Apples are good. Yeah. My three favorite snack foods for... Um, for not you know snacking is is that that's where people get into trouble in terms of their eating but but my my three favorite snack foods are apples and almonds and uh, egg an egg is great you know eggs, eggs only are, 70 calories per egg yeah and and it hangs with you also it a d- lot of protein uh, and they've yeah. they've discovered that all that cholesterol in eggs that they were worried about really doesn't contribute to the bad cholesterol that causes problems so good to know yeah, that that's due to saturated fat in your diet and the way your liver handles that. So <laughs> some of it is genetics and some of it is what you're eating. And some of it is also your exercise, too. But. Hi, I'm Lyle, and I like watermelon. Watermelon. Hi, my name is Hazel. My favorite snack is Nori. Hi, I'm Sarah, and I love chocolate. Oh, yeah. Oh, who doesn't love chocolate? Chocolate. So, anyway, you're listening to the world-famous God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. He's Bill Swirla. Bacon. There you go. Bacon is a fine snack. Ah, you want to go to the science desk? Um, y- you know, there's there's one that I think is fitting for you here. Calling all mystics. Clergy psychedelic study aims to induce spiritual experience okay i'm on that let's see um this this should bring you back to the berkeley days oh this is uh, roland griffiths professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at johns hopkins university no less that's right Great um, institute of religious learning there and which stems from findings that volunteers who've taken psilocybin uh some most often now what is found- that a, is it something you can make in your garage? No, it's actually the the hallucinogenic uh, agent found in certain mushrooms. Ah. In a wide variety of research settings, often report profound mystical experiences. Hmm. And so he's trying to induce mystical experiences 
Anyone in the world is invited to participate in an online survey about mystical experiences and God encounters, whether they were inspired by prayer, meditation, walk in the woods, or a dose of LSD in the 60s. You know, Timothy Leary was the one who was kind of like pioneering that in the 60s. Um, I, you know, there's been a lot of speculation over the years that uh, psychotropic drugs and whatnot uh, may open you up to a spiritual dimension (laughs) or or the demonic um right you know and that That would still be part of a spiritual i i I think uh, so i guess they're uh um spiritual seekers with extensive experience in buddhist or other forms of meditation are being sought for another study that allows them to try psilocybin in a clinical setting with experienced guides okay and then the third part of the research Involves here, this is for us now, ordained ministers. Oh. He and colleagues at NYU are looking for two dozen full-time members of the clergy in any religious denomination. Organizers recently tried to get word out. Okay, so after, what do they want to do? They, they, they want to, uh, after extensive preliminary screening, including medical and psychological tests, that's where we'd fail. Twelve subjects will receive <laughs> psilocybin in living room-like psychedelic sessions at NYU in Manhattan and John Hops, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Subjects wear eye shades, listen to evocative music designed to heighten the journey inward, and are monitored by two therapists who provide reassuring support. So far, only one ordained minister has done a session at Johns Hopkins. I'm signing you up. <laughs> I'm all over this. <laughs> Uh, I, I love this. During an Easter season worship service, 10 seminary students were given psilocybin and 10 received a placebo uh, placebo drug in order to compare the nature and extent of whatever mystical experiences they had during the liturgy. Now, I don't want this going on in my church, but I'd kind of like to see that. Just that. You know, train wreck side of me. Yeah. Well, they they hope to find clergy with no prior exposure to classic hallucinogens such as LSD, mescaline, and psilocybin. (laughs) Participants need to be in full-time ministry without likelihood of disruption over the next year. You know, unless this trip's, you know, this this, uh, monitored acid trip's going to be kind of a disruption. We don't want someone about to go on sabbatical because we're really looking for the after effects. Yeah, nothing like a flashback in the pulpit. You know, that's kind of exciting. Um, <laughs> in our text today, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm in. Far out, man. Wow. Just just like, wow. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, here we go. So we got Steve Juarez, a semi-retired psychiatrist who's practiced Zen meditation for 30 years, is one of the 18 subjects who's volunteered so far for the Johns Hopkins Study of Longtime Meditators. Surprising they're having a hard time finding people here. Juarez, who never tried psychedelic drugs when he was in college back in the 60s, found his recent psilocybin session to be quite an ecstatic experience. The music was unbearably beautiful. He felt paradoxically like he was in a vast void that was completely filled. Uh-huh. A void that was completely filled. Huh? A filled void. He was he was he was in he was <laughs> a paradox. Uh, at one point during the trip his guide handed him a single rose. It felt like I was looking at the rose and the rose was looking at me. 
And how many of us can relate to that staring, you know, into space in our college dorm room somewhere, you know? Now, two months later, Wars feels like he's become less rigid, less compulsive, and a little less irritable. Hmm. So he doesn't care, basically, any longer, you know? He's just... I, I, it was a wake-up call, he said. I had the sense I'd been passing roses and people and trees and all kinds of stuff all my life without really looking and really connecting. I saw that I have the opportunity to have more intense and beautiful connections to everything in my life. Do you think if we put this in the water at a synodical convention that we join hands and sing in you harmony? Know, you know, now that's really where Johns Hopkins needs to go. Yeah, they, they need just... to. They need to put an entire synod. They need to put an entire <laughs> synodical convention on hallucinogens, and 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 see what they come up with. I, I, I this wow that that could be a religious experience. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> crazy, just crazy. And it just keeps going and going and yeah, going. Yeah, this is this is actually it belongs on the science desk because th this is the the quest for the biological basis for religious experiences. And you know, th this is tough because religious actual true spiritual experiences, the realm of the spirit, though indivorceable from the physical realm, um, is distinguishable. And I think sometimes we attribute certain biological things to spiritual experiences that actually aren't, properly speaking. Give you an example, nostalgia, the feeling of nostalgia. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's a major component of what many people identify as a close-to-God religious experience. When somebody says, I feel God, I feel very close to God, or I feel that God was with us, it's more like it's 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 a nostalgic experience which is very emotional if you had a good childhood if you felt safe when you were a child anything that evokes home and mother or grandma or whatever you know, i have a friend who says if you want people to have a religious experience on christmas eve uh you know those c and e people that come to church bake snickerdoodles in the church kitchen before the service and the, That's manipulative, but probably a good idea. It's no, no less manipulative than a lot of music and other stuff sure. that goes on. But in other words, evoke home. Norman Rockwell, you know, the selective memory of the wonderful past when I was safe and cared for. And, you know, that's that's the that's the 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 that's the religious impulse. Now, there's a truth to that. Okay, what did Augustine say? He says, you know, our souls are restless till they find their rest in thee. You know, we have a longing for home that that no home in this world and in this life can fill. And and I think that's 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 a that's that's a real thing. As spiritual creatures, we, we have a longing for home. We have a longing to be with God. We have a longing to, you know, what Jesus describes as our heavenly home. You know, this whole nostalgia thing, you're, you're right about this. You, you know, um, sights and smells, uh, smells and sounds are particularly powerful. Very, very. Uh, I love the smell of a cigar because it transports me back to being 11 years old and we had season tickets for the Angels. The old guy who sat in front of us sat there and smoked cigars all through every game. Yeah, so it's... And, it's you know, it just takes me back to being a kid at a, at a much 
you know, more carefree time. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and it's it's that memory. I mean, I have that same thing when I smell stale beer and cigars because it takes me right to, to, to old Comiskey Park, uh. which smelled like a subway. <laughs> but the, these were these are the first games I went to with my dad when I was a kid, you know. And and really, I mean that seriously. When 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 there's that that Comiskey Park had a unique odor to it. When they built the new park, I said, "There's no way you'll ever be able to replicate that smell." You know, it takes years. Uh, you that know, old park smell. Yeah, and 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 but that smell of of cigars i mean this is back when you could smoke in public and nobody yeah. beat you over the head right you know so so you got people smoking cigarettes smoking cigars drinking drinking cheap beer uh you know you got people who are a little too lazy to go to the men's room so but you know enough said that that that's that to me that's baseball that's that's that was childhood dollar beers at the at the yeah that's right they're like a couple of bucks <laughs> in fact, I think I think Bill Veck had some sort of special promotion. You know, it's kind of like buy one get one free. <laughs> uh, they're great days, great days. But but you know, it, there are certain um, smells or sounds or things like that that are just evocative of a whole bunch of emotions and and whatnot. Um, this business of so what do you what do you think is the business of like uh, crazy mushrooms and religious experience though? I don't know. I I. I... You know, if you hallucinate and see things and hear things and smell colors and stuff like that, it, of course, people who don't understand what it is uh, to know the presence of God or anything like that are going to start attributing weird things to that. You know, hallucinogens and, and, and psychotropic drugs have almost always been part and parcel of pagan religion. Yeah, you know that's that's the peyote and all that. That's the pharmacaea that's referred to in in uh, um, the Revelation, and uh, and so yeah, and and in like like the Greek religions, you know, ecstatic speech, losing control of your senses, uh, this 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 these mystical experiences. This is this is the big thing. Uh, whereas in Christianity. Um, Christianity values the mind. Hmm. You know, St. Paul says, I will worship God with my mind. He talks about speaking coherently of Christ. He talks about God being a God of order. Um, I, I think it's actually antithetical to Christianity to seek mystical experiences from within, because we know that from within us come murder and adultery and, and all that. I would kind of shudder. Uh, at the promise of you'll get to have an inward journey. I don't want an inward journey. I know what's in me, and I don't want to see it. But this could be a nightmare. Uh, uh, I, I would. One reason I haven't volunteered for this is I don't want to go there. I don't care who my guide is. There's no Sherpa around who's going to be able to navigate that trip, and and I don't want it. It's going to be a bad one. Uh, you know. Well, to, it to be you in know, Christ is the thing, not to be into ourselves. It's interesting in in my background coming from the fundagelicalism, uh, where the more extreme your story that you made up about your past and your conversion to Christianity, the better. Uh, and and so, you know, in the Lutheran Church, uh, our pastors are usually raised in the Lutheran Church. They go through Lutheran schools. Uh, Lutheran high school, Lutheran college, and Lutheran seminary, and then they come out and they're Lutheran pastors. Uh, but in the evangelical world, all too often, it's always been the case of the bigger loser you've been in your life, the more qualified you are for the ministry. 
<laughs> and, and, and so, you know, if you're a drug addict, a recovering drug addict, and, and uh, you know, you were in a gang and all that kind of stuff, you are more fit for the ministry than those who grew up in the church. I mean, that's just kind of the way that it seems. And I can't tell you how many of these Jesus people from the 60s and 70s that I grew up with had these big stories about being high as a kite and hallucinating and demons chasing them all over the place and and all of that kind of stuff. And it really makes you wonder, is it simply that what you're talking about, that this opens us up to see the ugliness that dwells within our black hearts? Or is it a spiritual realm that it opens you up to? Or is it neither? And just simply a bad trip and and you need to uh, stop doing drugs. Yeah, well, there's that. You know, biblically, um, as I said, this is not the the biblical access to the spiritual realm. I mean, God grants that. The, the, The gateway between heaven and earth is the incarnation of Christ. Um, you know, he's the ladder upon which the angels ascend and descend. Uh, he's the one who joins heaven and earth. He's the one who reconciles God and man. It's not uh, mushrooms or chemicals or, you know, any of those sorts of things. Um, those are, at best, biologically induced phenomena um, that, you know, tinker with the complexities of our brains, and our brains are marvelously complex. Uh, at worst, I think they they open us up to um, the deceits of the devil, and uh, you know I I think these things are to be avoided as much as anything that impairs our judgment is to be avoided. Uh, you know God appeals to our reason and He uses our reason. You notice it's it's mysticism that they're focused on. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely, you know, Luther had very, although he did write an intro to, you know, Tauler's Theologische Deutsch, uh, you know, which is a mystical work. Uh, I wouldn't make too much of that. Luther did not think highly of the going inward journey. You know, it, right. was, it was all outside of, it was all extra nos outside of us uh, and not inside of us following, you know, what Jesus says. So. I, 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 this is, this is the, those who are, it, I think it's a natural for people who are into meditation or into these kinds of inward things to be fascinated by that. But for the Christian, and I would say probably very likely for the Jew, this is not, not an attractive uh, offer because we, we know that there's nothing good that dwells within us. So right. why would we go there? You know, going along with what you were saying, Luther didn't seem to have the happiest relationship with those Wickow prophet guys. No, not 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 at all. Not at, you know. <laughs> you know, it, and they they were just the schwermer, the the uh, charismatics of his day, basically. Right. Uh, you know, enthusiasm uh, is pretty much a dirty word in our circles. Um, mm-hmm. You know. Now, this is not to say that there isn't a strong subjective element of our relationship with God in Christ. There most certainly is. But it's mediated by word and sacrament, not by mushrooms. And that's really kind of the key, you know. And it's not about the loss of your reasonable facilities. It's about the redemption of them. Right. You know, we get we get our our right minds back. Uh, Sin sin has put us out of our minds. And so we get our minds back in Christ. Right. And, And it also tells us that we should indeed look within so that we have something that we know we need to repent of, not celebrate. 
Right. I mean, yeah, the the, the the law will give you the MRI of what's inside you. And, and right. you know, it ain't a pretty picture. Uh, so, no, going to take a pass on that. And I really, you know, I, I, I don't need an acid trip to remind me. That, All right. I won't send them your name. That I, I don't stop to smell the roses once in a while. That's not exactly what I would call the most profound thought that I've heard today. But uh, hmm. also cluttering the science desk. <clears throat> Do science and religion conflict? It all depends how you see it, they mm-hmm. say. And seeing is the operative word, according to the Pew Research Center. I always love that. Um, you know, they do religious surveys, and it's Pew. <laughs> yeah, I've always kind of... Coincidence? I don't think so. <laughs> so, yeah, it, <clears throat> a lot depends... On um, how you ask the question. Well, I okay. Before we go there, yeah, I've kind of come to the conclusion that that it's atheist scientists that are always telling us that there's a conflict between the two. Well, yeah, yeah, they're they're one side of the ideological uh, battle, and the other side is the group that's made a cottage industry out of the conflict. Okay, you know there are plenty. <clears throat> there are plenty of uh, fundamentalist type Christians, probably mostly Christians. I, I can't think of others at the moment who might do this, but but you know who basically make it a, a hard line between science is bad and scripture and religion are good, and uh, and science isn't to be trusted. Yada yada. And so, I think it's both sides, but they're both ideologies. Well, and and this is like people. <laughs> You know, coming from a medical family, uh, I always kind of thumb my nose at a lot of the Eastern medicine people who reject Western medicine until something really goes wrong. Right. And then, of course, they end up in a Western hospital seeking Western treatment. And, uh, you know, if it's so evil, why would you go there when you're that ill? Uh, you, you would run even more. But the reality is we do lean to science for a lot of... A lot of things in our lives. I mean, you turn on your television, you are utilizing science. You listen to the God Whispers. A lot of science is involved with this. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they're, you might say that. Um, <laughs> it, it's funny. Those who said they saw the most conflict between the two worldviews in society are people who personally claimed no religious brand. The... The, the, you know, we always talk about the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, the knowns. The knowns are saying they see the most conflict. Here's the curious thing. If you look at the, uh, if you look at the image they posted, two questions. Generally, do you think science and religion are often in conflict or mostly compatible? Okay, and so 59% say they are often in conflict. But if you ask the question this way, does science sometimes conflict with your own religious beliefs, then 68%, is it? It looks like 68, says does not conflict. Right. Now, now of course, that's, so that's, a, that's the insider's view as opposed to the outside. If you're looking at everybody else, you say, well, they're often in conflict. If you look at yourself, you say, oh, now that says a couple of things. Either I sort of like... Um, I pick and choose what my primary theology is, and if I put a lot of stock in science, then it's not going to conflict, right? 
Well, when you say, when people say that science and Christianity or science and religion are in conflict with each other, I'm not sure exactly what they're saying. Are they saying that uh, Christianity and evolution? I mean, because that's not all of science. That's a very small corner of the scientific world. See, here, uh, here's, a, here's Christianity kind of... and nuclear chemistry are not in conflict. Christianity and physics are not in conflict. You, you know, uh, there is a conflict when it comes to evolution. We struggle with these things. Well, you know, <laughs> the problem with this is that we we think that um, these are exclusive worldviews. Uh, I, I think we're being misled by this. Kind. I, I'm, I'm less and less uh, happy with this term worldview. Mm. You know, because you have what what some people call a biblical worldview. Now, I'll grant you, there is a perspective from the scriptures that that casts light on on who we are uh, as human beings, who we are as part of the creation, who God is. Uh, that's a perspective, but a lot depends by what you mean by worldview. Uh, you know, the science of the scriptures is not modern science. It's the science of the ancient Near East or of the first century. And so um, that's not a different worldview. That's just a different perspective, a different way of saying things. And God accommodates himself to that. He doesn't kind of give them encoded science or he doesn't give Moses or Jeremiah special scientific knowledge. You know, he's he's running with what, you know, so if they thought the earth was flat, flat it is. It doesn't matter. It looks flat. Good enough. <laughs> you know, now, as, as someone who worked in the in the world of chemistry, when you became a pastor, did did you swear off your evil chemistry background? Yeah, you know, I stopped cooking meth. No, <laughs> um, no, of Too course. Much breaking Bad. You know, the chemistry. I was talking to. I, I was. I was uh, talking to a, a fellow lab partner, uh, and we were talking about the chemistry as a science, and we, we were noting that chemistry is one of the. It, it's a cool science in that it is both a thinking and a doing science. Mm. Uh, now there is theoretical chemistry, but not. Uh, it doesn't have quite the same panache that theoretical physics does. But it's a thinking and doing science. You you have to think and you postulate and you do all kinds of stuff and abstract. But ultimately, you have to get in the lab and do it. There's 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 a, a strong doing component. Chemists are always saying, "Where's the data? Show me. You know, show me." the evidence for for this it's, it's it's not sufficient to simply say the mathematics lines up this should be this is the way it is you know it's it's very much thinking and doing together which i think makes it um it's a wonderful science that's both abstract and concrete it it has strong craftsmanship elements to it uh chemists it, are the chefs of the science they, world. yeah they they cook and a lot of a lot of uh, chemists i know like to cook but there was nothing in chemistry that conflicted with my faith, and there's nothing that I gave up uh, as a believer or as a pastor. I mean, there's nothing in my chemistry books that, that doesn't hold today. Quantum quantum mechanics hasn't gone away because of the third article that Creed, you know. So. We're out of time. Got to run. There we go. Catch you next time. Good night, Dad. Bye, Mr. McKenzie. Bye. Go, 